So, after I taught last time, a couple of weeks ago, I woke up in the middle of the night that the night after and thought, oh no, I made a mistake. <laughs> Which happens often. But um, the waking in the middle of the night because of my age. And then, yeah, going back and thinking, oh, I wish I would have said this. But I think that I told you all in the, giving the history of the city of Corinth that it was established as a Roman colony in 44 AD. If you were a good reader in your study, you caught my mistake. It was 44 BC, right? I want to be sure to let you know that, yeah. I'm sorry. I goofed. I goofed. <laughs> and I want to just remind you, if you haven't had the chance to, to look up what I would call our First Corinthians anthem song, that song called By Our Love by Christy Knuckles from her Life Lights Up album, please do it. It's such, oh, I've just been, I've been playing it all the time and praying for you all and thinking of you all. And I have another song that I want to share with you this morning. If you were at the women's conference on Saturday, we sang it, and we also sang it at this campus on Sunday morning. It's called Spirit of the Living God, and it's by Vertical Church Band. It's from their Church, church Songs album. Another song that is especially in preparing for this week, I've just been um, praying with. And so I thought I would begin our morning as we open in prayer with a few lines from the song. So let's pray together as we begin. Spirit of the living God, we only want to hear your voice. We're hanging on your every word. We want to know you more. And today, this morning, we're asking you to come. We're welcoming you into this place, into our hearts. And we're praying that you will speak and that you will do what only you can do. That you will change us. That you will change how we see and that you will change what we seek. And so we're looking to you now, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin this morning, I want to review a little bit. And I've told you at the introduction that kind of the theme that I would give for the book of 1 Corinthians is... The church is God's cross-shaped community of resurrection people on a mission to reach the world with the gospel. So, in order for us to learn this, we're going to do some motions this morning. And you're going to be very excited and participate with me, okay? So, our sign for church is from the little, when we learned when we were little, you know, you get your fingers together. Here's a church, here's the steeple, open the doors, and here all the, here's all the people, okay? So, the church... The sign for God is, put your arm up and then just come down. The church is God's, we can do a cross, right? Cross shaped. The sign for community is like this. I like that, people coming together, okay? The church is God's cross shaped community. Do that again. The church is God's cross shaped community. Okay, oh, this is really fun. We're going to talk about the word for the sign for resurrection. Put your hand out here. This is a person, okay? But at first, it's, it's dead. So you got to put your part, you start here, laying down, and then stand it up. That's a sign for resurrection, okay? Resurrection 
people, I don't know, the sign for people is kind of two circles like this, okay? Okay, resurrection people. The sign for mission, you put your hand to your temple and then put your hands out at a diagonal. We're on a mission, okay? <laughs> on a mission. So let's do it from the beginning. The church, <laughs> I'm checking my notes too, is God's cross-shaped community of resurrection people on a mission. The rest is really easy. We can reach, right? To reach, this is the world, a circle. The world. And my, this is my made-up sign for gospel. It's good news, like that, thumbs up. And it's the good news about Jesus. And the sign for Jesus is you remember his scarred hands, okay? So we're going to say that the gospel is good news about Jesus, okay? That's our sign for gospel, okay? So on a, on a mission to reach the world with the gospel. Let's do it all together. We can do it, okay? Ready? Okay? The church is God's cross-shaped community of resurrection people on a mission to reach the world with the gospel. Give yourselves a hand. Okay. And if you really wanted to make your synopsis of the book of 1 Corinthians short and sweet, you could just say, it's all about saints together. Okay, saints together. I have to say, too, are you ready for a little open heart surgery this morning? Okay, we know from our introduction and our look at the first two chapters in 1 Corinthians that the church in Corinth has got too much Corinth going on inside of it, right? It's being influenced by the surrounding world rather than it being the influence in its community, okay? They have really not fully understood the gospel, and Paul is their spiritual father who's challenging them to grow up. He's calling them to live out their identity as God's sanctified people. He's heard of their divisions and calls them to live in unity. He's saying, oh my goodness, you are followers of Christ, not followers of Paul or Peter or, apostle, or, or um, Apollos. Um, he's also seeking to clarify the gospel as com something completely different from the wisdom and philosophy that um, they're, they're hearing in their world. And he's saying that the gospel is the power and wisdom of God that's centered on the cross. Okay? And the cross, although for Jews and Gentiles alike, they think it's foolishness. This is Christ's most glorious moment. The cross is his throne. This is the wisdom and power of the gospel. And this is what Paul proclaimed. Christ crucified. And he did so with hum hum humility. Not with fancy oratory like all the philosophers of the day. So as we're jumping into the chapters 3, 4, and 5 today, I want you to see there are two themes. They're woven throughout the book, but you'll especially see them here in these coming chapters. The gospel versus worldly wisdom. We're seeing this discussion of wisdom versus foolishness. And then we are going to see, look for this, that 
There are a lot of problems going on in this church. And the root of the problems, it's their pride. Yikes. I think this is going to hurt a little bit as we study today. Would you um, go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 3. We're going to read through some of these passages together. As we think about pride, I'm... I often think, at my house, we have a lot of sports going on. We're all very excited right now because March Madness has, has hit. We've seen the brackets and we're ready, ready to watch. But my kids always tease me because I have conversations with the TV. I get very angry when there is a player that is participating in a team sport and he makes it all about him. It makes me so mad. And my favorite players are always the ones that have the most assists. And even better, I really love the guys that just ride the pine. And they are working hard and practice every day to make those starting guys to be their best. And they're willing to play that part of riding the pine. And I think this is what God is calling us to (laughs) throughout these chapters. To say, okay, Lord, where is their pride in my life? And and humble me. Oh, it's a hard prayer to pray, but humble me. So, 1 Corinthians 3, I'm going to read verses 1 to 4. We'll start here. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, well, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. Paul is making it very clear here. They're immature, babies in the faith. They have lots of growing up to do, and Their immaturity is revealed by the jealousy and strife, the quarreling among them. Paul is being a little playful here because really he knows that they think that they're the spiritual ones. But he's calling them according to how they're acting out, that they're living according to their flesh. You see, as I mentioned, In Corinth, the gospel is competing with the other philosophies that are being shared in their their area, okay? There were traveling philosophers in this time, and they were the rock stars, okay, in this culture. And they traveled around with great pomp and circumstance, and they sought to gather followers. They sought fan clubs, Somehow, these Christians in Corinth think that they possess some sort of special divine wisdom that makes them super spiritual. And then they were placing themselves under their chosen philosopher, Paul or Apollos or Peter. Okay. Paul is trying to let them know that he and Apollos are not, they're not trying to gather a fan club either of them. They're on the same team. They're serving the Lord together. 
Oh, if the Corinthians could understand that there is only one who is to be put on a pedestal, Jesus Christ. Paul is letting them know that they are being ruled by their human nature, their sinful flesh. And I just want to mention here that if you look at all of the epistles, Paul has a certain way of viewing the Christian life, viewing the the world. And he talks about the old age. This is the realm where sin reigns. This is the path that leads to death. This is the time or, yeah, it's when you are ruled by your sin and your sinful nature. Paul is calling them out for living in this realm when really they've been pulled out of it and are in the new age that has come with Christ and that's been established through his life and death and resurrection and the giving of the Spirit. That they are called to walk in a newness of life where Christ rules through the Spirit that dwells within them. And that path is a path of righteousness and life and peace. And dare I say, unity, (laughs) service, humility. Do you see this picture that Paul is giving us? So he contrasts kind of this fleshly life and life in the spirit, the old age and the new age. And he's saying, don't be ruled by your old nature. Don't be proud and puffed up. Then he gives two metaphors in chapter 3. Because they've misunderstood the nature of what a leader is in the church. Apollos and Paul are just servants in the garden. God is the one who works through them and brings life and growth in the church. They are just God's servants, Christ's servants. And God is responsible for the outcome of that service. Then there's also this metaphor of the building, the temple. And Paul describes himself as the master builder and says, Christ is the foundation. And then if you skip down to verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3, please read with me. Paul's pleading with them. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple... God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. I want to be sure to mention here that when Paul uses the word you, it's in the plural, not singular. So he's saying you as a community are God's temple, and the Spirit is dwelling in your midst. The temple is not a building It's a new community of people who are transformed by God's saving power. So how in the world can this community where the Spirit dwells be divided? The Spirit brings unity. They are to be a holy and unified community shining with God's presence in Corinth. We also see here that Paul is calling out some who are tearing down the work that he's already done. They are destroying God's work. 
and they will not be spared from his judgment. He says there are two ways to build. You can build what's lasting or what's temporary. You can be building up or tearing down. My goodness, he's pretty bold here. And he just says, any building of the church that's done in the power of the flesh will not stand God's judgment. And he's reminding them, only God knows what's in our hearts. And he's pleading them to live to please God and to think of that, that they're going to be held accountable for the work that they do, either building up or tearing down the community. Then he finishes up chapter 3 with this discussion of wisdom and foolishness. And we're seeing once again how the thinking of the day is infiltrating the way that they are thinking and living. And he's saying, oh my goodness, I want you to learn the wisdom of God. So he says, don't be deceived by human wisdom. And don't boast in men. Or, and, and I think he's calling out these people that are tearing down the community by thinking that they are the wise ones and they're not willing to listen to Paul. They've rejected his authority. He's trying to say, oh my goodness, the human wisdom, the worldly wisdom that, you, that you've learned, it's got to be turned upside down by the wisdom of the gospel. And then let's look at verses 21 to 23 at the end of chapter 3. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the things or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Paul is calling them to live in this mentality of the new age. <laughs> he knows that through Christ, one day, Christians will be called to rule the world with him. And he's saying, live with that mentality now. He's saying, really, the apostles belong to you, belong to them. Okay? There's no reason for all this division and jealousy. Their whole way of thinking needs to change. He's saying, live as resurrection people now. Not just, don't look forward to it just when you get to heaven. Tom Wright puts it this way. The Corinthians were like people splashing about in a muddy pool when the ocean itself was right beside them. Like people drinking water from a polluted tap when the finest wine and sparkling mountain water were theirs to command. So that is the call to unity that we find in chapter 3. Then if we move on to chapter 4, there's a call to humility and service. Paul is letting them know that they've been wrong in their judgments of him. He says the apostles are servants. They're God's stewards. And they are accountable to God, the only righteous judge. Paul knows that, yes, in this world, 
that's been corrupted by sin, there will be a future day where everything will be made right. And it will, God will bring everything to light. God knows what's in everyone's hearts. He knows what's in our hearts this morning, ladies. And Paul is saying, you don't know what's in my heart. You've judged me, but you don't know what's in my heart. Once again, he's calling the Corinthians on the carpet because of their wrong thinking. They think that their new status as Christians, along with kind of the worldly wisdom that they're adding to it, give them the right to pass judgment on other people. They've judged Paul, and they think he doesn't measure up. And Paul says, I'm accountable to God. And he's not really wasting his time worrying about their evaluations of his ministry. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his wonderful book that's on Christian community that's called Life Together, says this, Judging makes us blind, whereas love is illuminating. When we judge others, we become blinded to our own sin and our own continual need for grace. But when we look with love, we can, God can give us a heart of compassion and understanding. Now let's go ahead and read on in chapter 4, verses 6 to 13. Paul says, I've applied all things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast if, as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you, you've become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Wow. Do we see this contrast between the Corinthians who are puffed up and the apostles who have lowered themselves to the utter depths? Low as, they've gone as low as they can go. And I want to share with you this idea of this picture that Paul is presenting here, it's of a triumph. In this time, when the Romans conquered another colony or country, whatever, you know, another state back then, they would have this huge parade. It was called a triumph. And they, would, they even built giant triumphal arches 
so they could parade through the arches and announce when they got back home, we've won, we're the victors, we're the rulers, we're kings. Okay, and they'd have all their booty with them. And then you know who would be dragging at the back of the parade? The people that they'd taken captive. And so Paul is saying, you are putting yourself up on this pedestal. You're announcing yourself as the ruler over all, you know, the best of all. And me and Apollos, we're just like the prisoners. The ones who are humiliated, held captive, the ones that would be killed or sold into slavery. So Paul is saying that different leaders within the church were proclaiming themselves as wise, lifting themselves up as full and rich and as kings. And this was just like the philosophers of their day. But Paul portrays himself as one of the prisoners And he's saying then, follow the pattern of life that I displayed when I was with you. Follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me. Be weak, despised, persecuted without honor. And who else can you think of when you read this passage but Jesus himself? Because he was the one exalted above all, Lord of all, who lowered himself and became human and then was willing to die our death, a humiliating, excruciating death on the cross to pay for our sins. Apollos and Paul are following in the way of Christ, and Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to do the same. He finishes up... Uh, chapter 4 and verses 14 to 21 identifying himself as their spiritual father he's lovingly correcting them he doesn't seek to shame them but he wants to encourage them and he's giving that instruction imitate me be humble servants and he's saying you know what my my buddy timothy who I'm mentoring, he's coming to you, and then I'm coming. So how are are things going to be when we get there? Are you going to be all full of yourselves and still thinking that you're wise? Or are you going to be living this new life in the Spirit where you're laying down your lives for, for others? And then we finish up with 1 Corinthians 5. Here we find... Paul says they must have a bold response to immorality in their midst. He says you must discipline the one who is living in sin. We find here that a man has married his stepmother. The father may have died, um, and this was likely um, an attempt to keep a family inheritance within the family. But regardless, Paul says, even the Gentiles would see this as abhorrent. This is completely unacceptable. And you have to call this man out. But Paul is also, once again, saying that they are arrogant, they're puffed up. And he's saying, you are greatly mistaken if you think 
that this new Christian life that God has given to you by his grace makes you somehow beyond judgment. You are not free to live as you please. And once again, we have to remember that in Corinth, all that they'd seen beforehand was that people would go do their religious rituals and that they would live how they pleased, right? And so Paul is trying to say, this is something completely different. It's also possible that this man was wealthy and from the social elite, and they were proud to be able to say that he was part of their community. So this was a difficult thing for them to be able to say, this is unacceptable. You can't be in our midst if you're going to continue to live in sin in this way. Let's read verses 6 through 8. Paul says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. Just what we want to be, a new lump. <laughs> As you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Do you love this picture here? Paul is pointing them to Christ as the Passover lamb, and he says, okay, from now on, the whole of the Christian life, it's just... A celebration of this, that Christ is the Passover lamb. He's the one that's given us life that we don't deserve. We've been passed over because of God's grace. And he's saying, since you're not living in that old way, you're living under Christ's rule. You have to live a life of purity. Celebration and purity. So he's calling them to live in the power of the Spirit that would bring them pure motives to live in sincerity, as having a pure heart and in truth. He's saying boldly, purge the evil from among you, in verse 13. Let's put it this way. We talk about the leaven reaching the whole lump of dough, right? He's saying that this one man's sin is corrupting the entire community. One commentator says, Would you want a doctor to say that, that he's okay if you just have a few cancer cells residing in your body? Paul is saying here that wickedness is a cancer that spreads if, it will not, if it's not cut out. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, once again in his book, Life Together, says this. Nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than a strong reprimand that calls another Christian in one's community back from that path of sin. Paul's saying you have to speak, speak the truth in love. And then, 
in the last section of chapter 5, verses 9 to 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality. And not only that, but greed, or is an idolater, reviler, which means somebody who really puts people down with their words, a drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what invite to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. I love this message here. You see, there was a letter that Paul had written previously that has not been found, but that they're talking about. And Paul had instructed them beforehand to separate themselves from people, from believers who practice immorality. But they misunderstood, and they thought they had to, to gather in close and get in their holy huddle and be, live separate from the world. Did they have any influence if they weren't seeking to look outside to the world around them? No. He's saying, no, 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 no. Don't judge outsiders. My goodness, they're living here. They're on this path that leads to death. What else would you expect from them? Don't waste your time judging anybody else that is not saved. That's God's deal. He'll take care of it. But he's saying you must reach out to them. You must interact with them. Please understand me, he's saying. But then he has the hardest word that I have to talk with you about (laughs) this morning that I've prayed about for the last few weeks. Because we do not hear this in church these days, ladies. Because we know that we are all living by grace. But there is a call here where Paul says that within the community, We must carefully give warning and encouragement to someone that we see that is on this path. That is headed to a very dangerous place. That's living in a pattern of ongoing sin. And it's not just sexual immorality. There's quite a long list there, right? And I think, you know, greed. Revilers. Ooh. It pinches. So I very carefully say to you, yes, we mostly must be concerned about living our lives to please God, just as Paul led by example, right? I am accountable to him. He knows what's in my heart. Yet, we need one another so that we can grow to become more like Christ. And we can't just ignore when someone is heading down a dangerous path. And ladies, I want to challenge you. You must put yourself in a place, in a few relationships in your life, where you give people permission to speak into your life. Where you say, my ears are wide open. If you see something in me that is not honoring this community, that is not honoring the Lord, call me out on it. And you have to be brave enough when the Spirit prompts you within those close 
relationships to do the same for the other who have given you that relationship and accountability. And there, as our, in our study guide we learned, there are times probably where leaders in the church must be the one to really take you know, a difficult situation and, and handle it. But I think we, we need to put ourselves in this place of humility where we say, you know what? There are times in my life where I'm blind to my own sin. And so will you love me and let me know? Tell me. I want to hear it. I want to hear it. This is living in humility. This example that Paul has given to us. And just, yeah. This balance of this beautiful, loving, holy community that's not just all caught up in their own troubles, in their own little world, but is loving each other well and is shining brightly and is reaching and having an influence out into the world. This is the call that we're given today. Let's pray. Lord, what else can we do but just fall at your feet? Because we're celebrating the gift of salvation that Jesus has provided for us. We're so undeserving. We're grateful. And we're asking for you to do that heart surgery that we need. Where there's pride, show us. Help us to be ones that serve. Show us the person that you want us to serve. Lord, show us the influence that we're having in our community. Would we be ones that are working towards unity and encouraging others to worship you, the one and only God who calls us to live pure lives? Lord, if there is any ongoing sin in our hearts today, would you purge it? from our hearts. And Lord, I pray that each one of us would have those ones that are close to us that can hold us accountable and that we can hold accountable because we want to reflect you in this world and to shine with your glory in the midst of a very troubled world that needs you and needs the salvation that you offer and that we're it. That we we are the church. You put us on a mission to reach others with your good news. In Jesus' name, amen.